If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. And I think whilst he, I'm sure, was intending to try and make as little impact as possible and to slide very easily into our lives, I guess he didn't really succeed. <laughs> and I just liked him too much, um, which was fantastic. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we are getting better acquainted with Louise. Hello, Louise. Hello, Dave. <laughs> How did you meet me? I met you through a theatre studies degree at Lancaster University in first year, obviously. Yep. In which year? I think it was 2000, wasn't it? We 2000, 2000, it was 2000. Year. And do you, do you remember actually meeting me or do you just know that you must have met me at some point? I don't remember the first day I met you, although I can definitely remember you in the rehearsals of the first thing we did. <laughs> why do you remember me from the rehearsals? Oh, why do I remember you? I think there was just this just, uh, gentle entering into my consciousness of, of days. <laughs> As there were probably many people, I don't think you did anything outstandingly bad. Good. For example. That's good. I was always, I think there was, there was an instant, well not an instant, but there was a time when I think me and, me and Richard were a bit worried that the microphones had been left on and, we, and people could hear what we were saying. That, that sounds like was it that? was. You know, we were doing the music for the dance piece mm. thing, and I think we were we were commenting on the attractiveness of the girls. <laughs> and we were a bit worried that that, uh, <laughs> that everyone had heard heard what we've been saying. I so. really wish that had happened. No, that would could... have been the most amazing way to start a three-year course <coughs> together. <laughs> yeah, that would have been terrible, wouldn't it? Really, for us. But yes, <laughs> it would have been quite funny for everyone else. What do you do now? That's the question. Interpret it as you will. Hmm. Good question. Uh, I'm freelance still. I have for the last couple of years been doing theatre and education for a company doing workshops in schools um, and I mainly do language shows, French shows and some admin marketing work for them as well. I've recently been doing more work in schools as a classroom assistant, hoping to do a PGC in January, doing more theatre and education work in the coming months and a little bit of random other stuff as well. <laughs> So that's what I do. Cool. Sounds like a nice kind of tapestry of sort of theatre and languagey things. It is a nice tapestry. It's been heavy on the school recently, which I've loved, but I'm really looking forward. This is my last week in the school, so I'm really looking forward to going back into the the theatre and education stuff. You go into schools, but you do theatre. Yeah, workshops. So it's not, uh, I hasten to add, it's not acting. Right. But yeah, leading workshops. Um, in French. Why do you hasten to add that it's not acting? Well, I like to think of myself as very much not an actor, despite okay. three years of theatre studies. 
Well, we didn't do much acting in our course, to be fair. No, that's true, that's true. But it was always something I never felt. I never felt I was really part of theatre studies, because like, I did half theatre, half French. And I hadn't done A-level, so I felt very much a novice. I kind of went in feeling I didn't know what I was talking about, and also left feeling a little bit the same way. Loved it, though. Loved what I did, and loved the little nuggets of knowing what I was doing. But didn't really mind that. I never wanted to be a source of all knowledge on anything theatre So I never felt... It, I'm not running myself down when I say that. Okay. I was good at stuff, but theatre wasn't my world and still isn't. And I find myself in this theatre and education company also feeling like, oh, how did I end up here? Never thought I'd, I'd do this again. Left uni going, yeah, French is my thing. That was fun, that was great, but French is my thing. So why, then, did, why did you decide to do theatre in the first place? Well, I, well, why did I decide to do it? Because I thought French would be boring <laughs> on its own. I thought I'll do half French, half something else. Thought of Spanish, but thought that would probably be a bit too intense languagey. Like the idea of something different, and loved drama GCSE. Like literally every single lesson for two years, really looked forward to going to, and left feeling invigorated at the end of it. Yeah, it's good at GCSE. But yeah, it really was. You know, it wasn't too testing, but it was just really interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't done it at A level, as I said. It wasn't something I ever intended to go into, but just thought, hmm, that would be good. And all the uh, transferable skills. Yeah, well, they do talk about the transferable skills. They do talk about that a lot. Skills a lot. Yeah. They have to, really. Yeah, but uh, maybe they're right. They might be right. Yeah, they're probably right. So you hadn't done theatre at all before you went and did, like, for two years before yeah. you went and studied it? Yeah, I hadn't even really done any amateur stuff, I don't think. I mean, I didn't feel like I was part of theatre studies in mm. a different kind of way. I mean, I did two, two I had a creative writing part to my yeah. degrees. So I think most people who did a minor or did joint had that kind of feeling Yeah, I think it. so. I think that's why we kind of gelled quite a lot. I think that's one of the big reasons. Yeah, all of my lasting friends from theatre studies, I think, are, are people who had a foot in two camps in some way. Yeah. Even people who studied straight theatre had other interests out, like a big other interest that was sort of yeah. challenging and pulling them across. Yeah. And why French? Um, yeah, I don't even know the answer to that, actually. I distinctly remember my, my memories of French, must have been GCSE, were of me sitting copying my friend. So pretty much every lesson, and reading these cartoons of the guy, I, Guillaume, let's say, I don't know, and just not knowing what was going on at all. And then there's a massive gap in my memory until I've chosen A-level, French and Spanish. And I don't think I was ever particularly talented at languages, I just loved the idea of them, of being able to speak to someone in another language and going abroad and travelling and communicating. It was the communicating. Yeah. I loved the idea of it. And again, maybe this is a recurring theme, I didn't particularly think I was very talented at it, and then couldn't believe it when I got A's in my mocks, like actually was stunned. But then I guess with languages more than anything else, you're always aware of what you don't know, aren't you? Yeah, I guess Part so. Part of it is, is finding a different way to say what you can't say, working around the problems. But I think different personalities probably have different reactions to whether they know things or not. You know, I'm sure there are some people who are like, I know all French, you know. I don't, well, you know. yeah, but can you ever say I know all English? Well, no, exactly. That's what I mean. Mm. I mean, you could say about life, you know, that life really nobody ever knows that much. We always know a tiny yeah, bit of life. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but there are some people who feel they know everything and there are some people who feel that they never can know anything. Yeah, I'm the latter, certainly. Yeah. 
I, I relate to that because I, I, I though I come across sometimes <laughs> like I think I know everything I, I don't don't think I know anything and you can now speak fluently French yeah yeah it was a real shock when I did well especially at Spanish actually because I our teacher really pushed us really hard and did all the lessons on football pretty much every single lesson was had football in it somewhere was that to get the boys interested I think it must have been I, have, I really don't know. Maybe he just was really into football. I also, yeah. yeah. I guess it's the idea that you don't have to learn it as in going through a textbook and learning the grammar. It's about real life, which is very true. Yeah. And he taught me a lot about learning a language the hard way, which is probably why I did quite well, I suppose. So how do you learn a language? Because I've never managed it myself. I think the key is finding a way to say what you want to say, even if you don't know the word. Thinking around the problem. Which, of course, you have to have a certain level to do. But accepting, oh, I don't know how to say this. But thinking, what can I say that will get my message across? Do you look at it as a puzzle? Yeah, it is a little bit of a puzzle. Because when you're speaking in another language, you have to always be thinking about the next thing you're going to say. Because, of course, sometimes the words are in a different order, or you might not know the word, or there may not be a word for that in that language, or you may not have that expression. So it is a little bit of a puzzle, trying to piece together what I'm thinking and what I'm saying what I'm thinking about next. Did you ever do any of that kind of crazy, I remember my, my language teacher always said, I tried to learn Japanese at school, didn't work, but I did go to Japan. But my language teacher then, he was, a, he was fluent in nearly every language, like the, apparently the staff went on a trip to Russia and they all learned, he taught them all Russian. And the same he, language Yeah, he, he knew Japanese and he knew everything really. But he always used to say when he was learning a new language, he has the words up on every wall, like in his house, like every time he's mm. doing, like he's, did you ever have any kind of mm, I didn't obsessive, think I did. no? No, but at that point it was just a GCSE, Yeah. so I, no I didn't, but maybe that's why I'm not good at retaining vocabulary. Are you not good at? No, I'm not, for a linguist I'm bad <laughs> at languages, um, I have a quite, I think I have a quite a mathematical mind, so I love the grammar, but I find it really hard to retain words. In English, as in any other language. At university, you went to France. Yeah. For a year. For a year. Well, I went to Africa for four months, French-speaking Africa. Ah. And France for the rest of the year. When you went away. Yeah. And, and left us all. <laughs> and I deserted my year group. You went to what Africa first? Yeah. So in the September, when you would have started your third year, I went to Togo. Ah. And what was Togo like? It was amazing. It was. Uh, it, it, it totally has faded into this thing that I did once. And I just, I can't believe how close I was to not going, actually, that's what strikes me about it. I was really, I was nervous about it. Although, weirdly, the thing that I, that was, made me nearly not go is because I really wanted to be a language assistant in France. And I thought I might not be able to do that, which is a stupid reason to turn down an opportunity to go to Africa. And why did, you, why, why did you go to Africa? Why was that the...? Because I did a course which was um, Francophone, African and Caribbean literature or something like that. And our tutor had a, a link. He knew someone that knew someone that had a link with a... It was the international part of the University of, of Lomé in Togo. And so that was a different kind of French you would have been speaking at? Well... Was it, it or not? Um, it was French. In, in West Africa, they have, they have a Francophone Institute. They're really big on enforcing French. So, so a kind of Queen's English style French? Yeah. Thing, right. Yeah, very much so. And I think that French hasn't really changed as much over the years as English has anyway. Like if you look at the difference between Shakespearean English and modern day English, 
the equivalent in French is not as different. Okay. Which is probably because they're so big on keeping the French as it is and not letting it morph like we do in English. They've got a very big sense of national identity. Yeah, and I guess the language is part of that. So when we went, obviously they had a a different accent and I had to kind of change my accent a little bit to be understood sometimes, which was really weird when I was just asking for a stamp to England. I had to ask three times and then give up and then change my accent and and be understood. And yet when we went to Ghana next door, which is an English-speaking country, we asked a taxi driver for a hotel. Very late at night, very tired, hailed a taxi and just asked, is there a hotel nearby? And he didn't understand us at all. His level of English was so low. It was the official language, but because it's not forced down their throats by this huge organisation. But the taxi driver didn't know the English for hotel? No. It took a very long time. I know when we got there. Well, that wasn't the most hairy thing. What was the most hairy thing? (laughs) The funniest thing, and probably the silliest thing, was when the girl I was travelling with and I got... I went off to try and phone my mum. I hadn't spoken to her for quite a while and I was determined that I should... I had to speak to her that night, which was silly. And it took ages and ages because there was a huge queue in the telephone place and then it kept not going through. And I was gone so long that my travelling companion, Bilga, was really worried about me. And so she ended up coming to search for me. So they were wandering around this quite small town asking for, have you seen an English white girl? Meanwhile, I left and went back to the place we were staying and she was gone. And everyone was running around going, oh, she's gone, she's gone, she's looking for you, quick, quick. And so I, some random guy offered me a lift on the back of his motorbike, so I jumped on it, I don't even know who he was. Off I went. And I think in a kind of Benny Hill comedy style, we were zigzagging across the town looking for each other on <laughs> two different mopeds. And I just remember thinking, I've t- taken so many risks this evening, walking around places, I'm not sure where I am. I don't know who I'm with. And it was just hilarious. And even at the time, I was aware of how comedy this situation yeah. was. But I've always been a bit naive, so I kind of thought, well, I probably shouldn't be doing this. But did it anyway. Well, that's, I think nine times out of ten, these things go right. And then they're yeah. just a funny story. You and your friend were the only white, white girls in the village, though? No. There were two others. We'd come okay. on, a, on a bus, and we, we'd kind of befriended these two other ladies that were travelling. The kind of people you think you're going to meet when you're travelling, the kind of le- people that have spent their whole life travelling and have got so many stories to tell. One was English, one was American. I think they were importing clothes and jewellery to sell in their respective countries. Okay. So we hooked up with them for a while. But they did inform us, which was quite nice actually, that they've travelled all their lives all over the whole world and this was the most difficult they've ever encountered. Just quite nice for a, a beginner traveller. I've, I've done the hardest there is. Did you find it difficult then? I don't think I really thought about it, I just did it. I think what they meant was that the transport links aren't great. Ah, right. There were no trains, for example, it's all just bush taxis and they have maybe timetables, but they never stick to them. So you can't plan a trip and you, you plan to arrive at a destination, but it might stop halfway and you don't know where you are. And that's just the way it is. And did you find that you just relaxed into that then, or did you get uptight about, about that? In my, in my memory, I relaxed into it, but the truth probably is that I got a bit <laughs> uptight, I expect. Yeah, it can go either way. I, I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation, and I can see me being really relaxed and also being really stressy. Nothing yeah. in between, really. I think because I had nothing to compare it to, really. I've been interrailing in Europe, but that's obviously a whole other level. Yeah. Of, you know, it's, it's basically England, really, isn't it? So I hadn't really had any other experience of going outside of Europe travelling. And what was it like going to Africa as a as a white person? Weird, yeah. I think the thing that I really it really struck me was that I could never belong here. No matter how long I stayed and even if I married somebody local, I would never be 
local. I would never really integrate into this society, just from the amount of attention I got when I was walking around and the way people treated me. Because you were so unusual? Yeah, yeah. And there were other white people around, but yeah, not many. And this was the capital city of the And country. you were a young yes, girl young as well, girl, so yeah. that, that probably yeah. helped with the attention. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it was fun, and it was, all, it was harmless, and we did literally have marriage proposals every day, people asking. <laughs> Yeah, would, would, do you want to marry me? How did you react to that? Was that nice um, or was that horrible? Mm, I wouldn't say it was one or the other. I remember my travelling companions telling me off at the, at the start for talking to people too much, paying people too much attention, because you'll never get anywhere because you just have people crowding around you all the time. Which, which kind of was true, but me being me, I don't like being rude, which just means also ignoring people. I find it very hard to do. Well, they're people, aren't they? You know? They are people, um, which obviously gets me into tricky situations because sometimes you ha- end up talking to people that you don't want to be talking to and it's not a good idea to be talking to, but I don't want to be rude, yeah, so I continue that. to do so. And often, even in England, and I'm walking with people, I can tell they're like, heads down, walk past. Don't make eye contact. Yeah, yeah. and I can't quite bring myself to be rude to them. No. I can hear everyone going, at me. I never felt threatened by it. It was a bit annoying sometimes. But it's quite nice to walk down the road and have kids running after you and kids, pointing at you. Kids is like, nice, definitely. Yeah. I mean, generally, I suppose, having someone running down the road and pointing at you and shouting at you isn't a nice thing to do. But it was done with such genuine excitement that you couldn't begrudge them that. Did you feel, like, personally flattered or did you think, oh, they're just doing this because I'm a white young girl and it would be any, any white young girl would get the same level of it? I didn't feel personally flattered, no. I knew it was because I was a white young girl. But... Having said that, when I then came back to England, I felt very insulted when I wasn't afforded the same attention <laughs> by British people, <laughs> especially British men. Yeah. Well, it's rude. Yeah. <laughs> it's rude to, to go down the street and ask women to marry you, I think. You think it's rude to ask you? Well, I don't know. It's, I've never had the confidence to just go up to girls and say, you're looking good or whatever, something like that. I think if I did they would be very annoyed with me and think I was quite sexist. Unless really? they th- unless they fancy me. I think that's how it goes. It's nice when it's someone that you fancy that says it. And it's annoying when it's somebody that you don't fancy saying it. See, I'm always a bit dubious about this because I, I can't help but think that all women must surely like a compliment. Part of me thinks maybe they do. But it depends how the compliment is. Yeah. Like, it's not very nice to have a wolf... Whistle, yeah. is it? I don't yeah. know. It's the difference between walking past a, a building site and, and, and hearing a wolf whistle and, and actually a comment to your face. I mean, a complimentary I nature. If I always think if it was reversed in a way, I don't know, if I walked past a group of women and they started wolf whistling at me, I'd be made up. Yeah. I'd be really chuffed. And whilst <laughs> I, I think probably a woman that walked past a group of men, that's a bit intimidating, isn't it? And there's something a little bit scary mm. about that about joint appreciation of one woman is a little bit scary. Yeah, no, so, I, yeah, can, I can not. see joint... That, that, <clears throat> that's a good point. But an individual is a different matter, I guess, if it's an yeah. individual. But didn't it always feel like group appreciation when you were in Africa? Uh, not always, no. But it was very different. It wasn't appreciating physical attractiveness. Right. It was about, would you like to marry me? <laughs> it was It was that simple. But was it because of the fine... Was it a way out of... Uh, I think, yeah, I think so. Um, and we did make friends with some people that live locally. And from what I understood from what they said, 
if you were, were to marry somebody from Europe, you would have a, a passport out of Africa. And there were, there were, you know, because we were living in the university and there were lots of students around where we were, you know, people had aspirations. Yeah. They didn't just want to, you know, get out of there. They wanted to achieve something and get out of there. And what was the life like for the people who weren't in university? Did you see much of that? Not much. We did go to a couple of our friends' houses. It varied a lot, really. And, it, and again, it was weird because we were living in a compound which was nothing like the accommodation of everyone else. Hence my point about never fitting in. You know, no matter how normal we tried to be, we would never really live in the same way, I don't think. Yeah. And so you had what might resemble British university halls, I suppose, for the actual African um, students. And then there was us, and then the other side of that, there was the local accommodation. Okay. So we visited their houses quite a bit, and they were, yeah, very basic. I wouldn't say, like, abject poverty, because we were in the capital city. Right. Homely. Homely? Yeah. You know, lots of brightly covered, coloured stuff up on the walls. You know, it wasn't mud hut. Yeah. Level. And I don't know very much about Tongo itself. Is it was Togo. it Togo? Togo. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, for example, the name. For example, the name. <laughs> you know that now. Yeah, Tongo. Yeah, Togo. Togo. Right. Now it's going to be one of those words where I forever get it mixed up. Now, was it peaceful at the time when you were there? Was it? Did it have a lot of African countries have wars going on within them, but not all of them by any means? Was was it was it a safe place to go, or was it on the list of don't go there? It wasn't on the list of don't go there. It, it was peaceful. There was the president, Ayadema, was a dictator. Um, had, I think while we were there, changed the constitution to allow himself to stay in power again. Okay. So there was a lot of discontent. And I think the military uh, and, and teachers hadn't been paid, being civil servants hadn't been paid for ages and ages and ages. So there was a lot of talk of that and of things happening. What things? Shootings by military. It did seem like... A very different world, of course. I think people weren't particularly up for speaking about it a lot. I didn't get the impression I was in a, a dangerous place. And again, my naivety was always like, oh, you know, I'm white. If anything were to happen to me, there'd be a scandal. So I'm hardly going to get be the target of a military <laughs> attack. But it was... Um, well, I think, yeah, that's a, that might definitely constitute as naivety I think yeah it's funny when you're young though isn't it you do these things and you, you look back and you think why if I was now I would be so worried yeah but then I was just so calm yeah I think the the one you asked me earlier about my, my hairiest moment I think that would be and this is the story that I told when I did the spark, spark. story um, when we went to a, a political rally, uh, I think it was probably a celebration of the president's birthday or some kind of anniversary, and there was a military parade, and we decided to go because somebody had tickets, and I was just a little bit intrigued. And um, we were there for ages, and it was so boring and, and hot, and we decided to go for walks, which I like, go to the toilet, maybe get something to eat if there was anything. And um, we wound our way around the back of the stand, so it was really quiet, and out of nowhere, this soldier was there all of a sudden with a whip properly whipping his whip on the ground okay. in my direction and it really wasn't very far from me at all the look on his face was terrifying i would i don't know if it was terrifying i didn't feel terrified i just felt like this is really weird did it feel real it it felt it kind of felt real like 
I was aware that I should be scared and he looked scary and the whip sounded very scary but I was also aware that he didn't quite know what to do with me I guess he wasn't expecting to see someone like me there yeah. and that was what I was like really aware of was like he didn't know what to do and it was it was a little bit like in the house where I used to live there was a squirrel always around and a cat and when they met in the garden the cat was of course like I should get the squirrel but I don't quite know what to do here and the squirrel was clearly in charge and it was exactly that wow and I, I think I remember thinking I need to not laugh yeah. don't laugh yeah yeah but it was really quite hard to do because it just felt so absurd and I was aware of the like, yeah this, this soldier's like confusion but also feeling quite scared by what could happen so I just backtracked quite quickly and ran away and it was fine, of course, as it is nine times out of ten. And that's interesting. I mean, it seems like your reaction to being in sort of slightly dangerous situations is to be amused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that's true. I, to, to laugh and to smile is probably my default way to be. Generally, um, that will help, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. It's just that, like you say, the, the word, that, that time was not a time to laugh. Yeah. I can, I can <laughs> see that. We met at university, though I don't know very much about your life beforehand. Did you have a happy childhood, or what, how would you describe your childhood? Um, yes, I would say I had a happy childhood, definitely. I have amazing memories of my childhood, and I hope my children have as good a childhood as I had, most definitely. What's, what's your, what, what, what's your, top, like, your what's, what stands out as the best memory? Um, I lived in an amazing place in the, in the country in Surrey, in a, in a little village. I guess that was why it was so amazing. So my it was a countryside. Countryside. Our back garden backed onto woodland, which was our playground, and next door but one was the stables oh, with wow. twins who were younger than me. So my my playmates, and we we uh, got up to all sorts of mischief on a on a low scale, low yeah. scale mischief. But I I think even at the time I was aware of how fantastic this was. We lived in this amazing place. And I've been back since, and you look at those houses and go, they must be worth, like, <laughs> a fair bit of money. And it was an idyllic situation, but when we moved in, it was the old servants' quarters of a big estate house. Okay. So the idea was to convert it only in the eight years that we were there. Was it eight years? Yeah, I think we were there eight years. That never happened at all. But it was the kind of place, like, our neighbours were really rich, and the neighbours, you know, three doors down or three properties yeah. down, I should say, also. But ourselves and this family that lived in the stables weren't. <laughs> we were just normal people. But we had this, you know, huge woodland to play in, and just across the road there was the cricket ground of the private school that was oh, okay. a little way away. We used to make dens out of their um, sports mats. How old were you then around. when you moved there? Um, I was three to eleven. Because I, okay. I, I, lived, I lived in the countryside in a small village Three to nine, three to nine. Right, yeah. And then I went to a different place. But well, I know th- what Those are the like. years to have those, a place yeah. like that, aren't they? I know my, my brother was a teenager there at the same time. Yeah. And he didn't like it. Because you were to go out. miles to get to his yeah. secondary school. There was nobody to hang out with. Yeah. Whereas you're right, it's like having a playground oh, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And there's, there's less worries as well, isn't there? They can send mm. you out and you can yeah. run around and they don't have to worry because yeah. you're in the countryside. And everyone knows everybody generally yeah. as well, yeah. which is kind of nice, I think. 
So you, you lived in the countryside till you were 11? Yeah. And those are your sort of idyllic years? Yeah. Uh, we, we moved... So, so my parents got divorced in that time. Okay. Um, which kind of obviously comes with less idyllic memories. But I don't... My overriding memories of my childhood are, are really happy. And when I think back, I don't... It takes so much more thinking to think about the things that were really hard. That's interesting. I mean, when I think of my childhood, I've, I have a really idyllic possibility to think of. Like, I can think of mm. this really idyllic, like you say, like the countryside time, but also even when I was in cities, it seemed like there was this kind of idyllic time with my mm. friends and then this kind of dark time with my family to a certain extent. And um, was the whole of your family time kind of darkish? No, because, well, not, not when I lived in the... Not when I lived in the city, because I had, my, I went to my dad's every other weekend, and that was very okay. nice. So I had, I that that again, I have a idyllic time with him. But then I sort of the other side of it with the divorces and the my stepdad and my mum's divorce and stuff like that. When I, it it seems like the bleakest time and the happiest time in my life happened at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you get that kind of feeling, or do you just find it hard to think about the negative time? I think my bleak times are, are kind of short bursts of bleakness in the midst of happiness. The problem in our house was that the walls were very thin, so mm. me and my sister could hear every argument or anything going on. And if you've got a sort of separate space for it and you're being sent up to bed, that's quite nice. It's nice to be be a prote- mm. protected from it to a certain extent. It is, extent. yeah, like denial's a great thing. I'm all for it. I know that's not denial, but... Sometimes it is good to not know what's going on, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's really like it's not the business of children yeah. to know what the hell's going on, and not till they're adults, and then maybe we can talk to our parents now and and work it out. But it's not really our business to yeah. know the complications of adult life when we're kids. It's yeah. nicer if you don't have that. That's I, my feeling. Yeah, I do agree. Although I also wonder to what extent parents are right in thinking I have to protect my kids from this mm, mm. because I think to a certain extent kids do know what's going on yeah that's true um, and I suspect I you know and I look back and there, there were memories of being in that house when I knew something was going on and in fact you know would it be nice if my mum talked to me and didn't yes I guess it would you know that what was going on but then she's got her own yeah. cross to bear or she whatever has, she's, she's got, got her own, own situation to, yeah. to deal with um, and it's really funny because my mum and I are really, really close now and, and we we talk about, you know, the past and she comes out sometimes with things and she says, oh, it was so awful, I used to do this and that. And she doesn't say she's a bad mother, but it's that kind of thing, like, I'm really nice to do this and it was awful. And I was like, oh, really? I don't remember that at all. And yet I have memories of being the world's worst child. <laughs> I really, I have very, very clear memories of being a horrible kid. Yeah, um, me too. And I feel very ashamed of it. I I did feel very ashamed of it. I think we both did the best we could at, at the time. We had horrible rows for m- many, many years. What, your mum your mum and you? Yeah. I never ran with my dad. Was that after you left? I mean, after you left oh, your that dad's house? house. Um, the house you shared with your dad? Yeah. I, I think we stayed in that house a little while after they split up. Okay. We moved to another amazing idyllic house in the next village, which was temporary, where it got really bad. Obviously, you know, my mum had shattered my world. I don't think I necessarily blamed her, but I took my anger and fear out on her. Okay. Just as I'm sure that sometimes she may have taken her 
anxiety and fear out me yeah. as well. And I, it, it has been really fascinating talking to my mum and just seeing how different our visions were of that time. For example, she told me that um, she struggled a lot to get food on the table some weeks. And I had no idea, and I had such a fun-filled, like, fulfilled childhood that I couldn't imagine ever going without anything or lacking anything. And when I start to think back, I can remember that the things we did were free. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I went, oh, yeah. There's a lot you can do for free. There's though. a lot you can do for free. And, I, and I feel years. really, really grateful that I had that experience. And I know, and I, I'm sure I'm not going to be a parent that has a lot of money. And it's fantastic to know that... I've done that, all right. <laughs> well, that's very true. I mean, I find that at the moment, having no, have, I don't have a very high income, but it, I don't think it limits my life very much. And there's, there is some wonderful things you can. I mean, you know, you can, you can get by if you can. If you can get yeah. by, you're okay. Yeah. When my mum and my stepdad split up, then I did have years of. I mean, I I was very much the counsellor, like I had to listen to my mum telling me about her troubles all the time mm. and i got to say I would have preferred to have had a confrontational relationship than a counselling relationship but then I think the grass always looks greener on the other side you yeah. know what I mean? I think I had that kind of counselling relationship with my dad Okay. I think and I also can recommend the confrontational relationship It's hard counselling people when, when you're young parents. and when you're young and you don't yeah. understand the way that my mum was as well as that she she will go completely down on everything. So when she goes completely down, she'll say, she's to blame for everything. But she'll also say, you're to blame for everything. And she'll say that, you know, she said mm. many things like about, which she didn't mean, but she said, you know, I wish, you know, all that. Although all the cliches, like, wish you'd never bored, been born and men are to blame for everything and you're a terrible child and you're a terrible, and all this stuff. And it was just something that she said because she was having a bit of a breakdown. Yeah. And... You know, I wish that she'd been saying that to a therapist, maybe, or yeah. someone else. Because I guess she had to say those things, but yeah. they weren't very healthy for me. Yeah, and I think it's the same with my dad. He didn't really have anyone else to tell those things to. And I was there. Yeah. And yeah, that was the hardest thing, I think. Yeah. Kind of looking after my dad. Did you have a good teenage, though, after you moved away? I remember being happy as a teenager. We definitely, we definitely still had lots of rows. I guess I'd gone from being a moody kid to a moody teenager <laughs> <laughs> with no break. But yeah, I loved school. I loved, I had great friends. And again, yeah, lots of happy memories. That's good. My mum had a new partner as well. Mm-hmm. How long? Um, I have trouble placing history in my life. I really do my, too, yeah. In my life. Um, they got married when I was 16, summer after GCSEs. So... He'd been living with us for a couple of years before that. So again, quite an influential time, really, kind of 14 to 16. And that changed a lot, actually. That changed the whole atmosphere at home, really, in the way that my mum and I interacted, in in a fantastic way, definitely for the best. And I think Chris, my my stepdad, was one of the biggest influences on my life, certainly. And, And I still see a lot of him in me, actually. And I think whilst he... I'm sure was intending to try and make as little impact as possible and to slide very easily into our lives. I guess he didn't really succeed. <laughs> um, I just liked him too much, um, which was fantastic. 
So in a nature nurture sort of way, you, you're sort of siding on the nurture there, and that he has had yeah. big effects on who you are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, definitely his way of being is very inspirational and I don't really achieve it all the time, although I would like to. What's his way of being? Um, Very, very laid back, very, very laid back. But also kind of just knowing who he is and where he is and what he wants. Centred. Yeah, centred, having boundaries, but also throughout that being very, very laid back. But then I think that that sort of could be a description of you. Ah, there we well, go. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and certainly that's not the way I was. No. Um, so, well, I don't think anyone's that like that as a teenager. No, but. that's true. Yeah, yeah. But I think I, I definitely he would be a role model in a way that I guess my mum never could because I'm too close to her. It's funny, isn't it? How that yeah. Could go. Yeah. So your 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 experience of a step parent is a very positive one. Yes, very positive. That's good to hear. Yeah, they happen. <laughs> they do. And uh, I think most people's, a lot of people's, are. My experience mm. of a step parent was actually initially was very positive. Really. And then it changed. I don't really know why. No one really understands why it just mm. changed. And now I get on with him all right. Actually, my stepdad. Oh, um, that's yeah. weird that it's gone back to. Well, it was a. I kind of there was a kind of moment where he apologised for the way that he behaved in the past, oh. and then we, you know, I think as well he, he split up with my mum when I was still quite young, so there were the but oh, he, yeah. but my little sister he was always in her life, so we've always we've known each other for a long time. We have shared history together, and mm. after the apology sort of happened, we can get to know each other as adults, and I think he's a bit mystified by those oh, really? kind of lost years and why he behaved in those ways and why why anything happened. I think I mean, when you're a child you think adults mm. they they understand, but actually I'm sure that most adults look back at their lives and go, What yeah. the hell happened? Um I mean I'm not sure he would express it in the way that I just did. Yeah. But I think that he feels that. Or at least I like to think that he feels that, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But you had a very positive um step dad experience, which is nice. And then you went away to university. Yeah. You know, I've always thought of you as a very centred, very confident person. Do you think that's the case? Um, I like to think that I'm centred. I definitely don't think I'm confident. Okay. <laughs> so, no. Well, I think that's the way... Do, do you think, yeah, probably do, is the way Do you feels. think, or did you think when we were at university, mm. more to the point, that I was confident? I think by the time I went to university, I was quite aware that what people project on their outside is very different from what's in their inside. Ah, okay. I knew that that was certainly the case for me, and so I thought it was probably the case for other people. So, yes, I was aware that you acted like a very confident person, and I, I reckon you probably had confidence in yourself in certain areas. I think I am confident in some ways, yeah. Um, and... You, you were confident in your opinions, uh, in that this is definitely what you believe. Yes. I guess if someone were to ask who's more confident, me or you, I would say you. Really? But I I, I'm, said really, really, so I'm, I'm willing to accept you. that that isn't the case. It's interesting. I think as I've got older, I'm less confident in my opinions. Oh, really? Yeah, definitely. Like, almost completely unconfident in my opinions now. I'm not saying I don't express them really confidently, but I, I just think that... Cert- I guess actually I guess my main opinion is that you can't be certain 
So I'm yes, really confident yes. about that. But yeah, that's exactly, that's the area in which I'm confident, <laughs> is that you can't be certain. Yeah. And I'm more than happy to put my hands up and say, I don't know, or I, I think maybe this, but I'm quite sure that it may be that. Yeah, you were saying to me earlier on that you consider yourself to be kind of a devil's advocate a lot of the yes. time in conversation. Yes, very much so. If I'm talking to friends, I'll often be, have you considered this, the other side of the story? Um, and, and that translates into conversation and debate. As If there were two different arguments being put forward, I will understand them both. And I might maybe agree with one a little more, but as soon as someone starts sharing their opinion, I go, oh yeah, that is true, yeah. And so I think that, you know, makes of me a, a weak argumentalist. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it makes you a very enjoyable person to try out opinions on, I find. Oh, that's good. And I think you are, well, I like, I like talking to you because you will challenge things, but you don't do it with any kind of, there's no edge to it. I guess that's because you're maybe being a devil's advocate and you're just seeing. A lot of people who say that they're devil's advocate, and I've got friends who consider themselves to yeah. be devil's advocates, they do it quite provocatively. Like, yeah. you don't do it provocatively. And so it makes it quite easy to take. Yeah, I do like challenging people's opinions. Like I like, partly because I like to hear them um, express themselves and explain themselves. But also I... I don't, I don't go into it thinking, you're wrong. No. If anything, I go into it thinking, tell me why. <laughs> Persuade me. Well, I think that's the thing. It's if you are challenged, but then if you argue, then you go, oh, I see what you're saying, rather than yeah. continuing to push yes. the view just to see what happens. Yeah. Like, sometimes devil's advocacy can be a very deliberately kind of provocative technique, whereas yeah. I don't think that you... You might be deliberately provocative, but you're not trying to just mess with the situation. You're, you're, you're interested to see where it goes. Yes, yeah, that's certainly true. And whilst probably the first couple of years of university, I spent many a time thinking, oh, I don't have anything interesting to say. I'm kind of getting over that now. Yeah, I think that's something that happens around our age, though. I think I'm, I'm sort of feeling more confident in who I am, maybe. Mm. less confident in what I think I think I had I had I remember having that at university I remember thinking I wish I was a more um, opinionated person sometimes I wish I knew more about stuff and I wish I could have more interesting engaging conversation or debate about things but actually I still like who I am yeah. and I'm still happy with who I am and if changing one meant having to change the other I'll stick with what I've got thanks so actually, maybe that's why you thought I came across as very confident. Yeah. It's because I guess I was happy with what I, what I was. Well, I think it's because you... It's probably partly because, like you said earlier on, you, you smile and, mm. you, you know, every, every, nothing seemed to... I don't think I've ever seen you... Well, might, maybe I will one day, but I don't think I've ever seen you angry. And I don't think I've ever seen you... Um, yeah, you always you always seem very centred in yourself. That I mean, centred is a word that I'm using a lot. I'm realising about you, and it you, you know that's what I always feel I haven't got is a centre. I'm sort of like, oh. uh, and I don't, there's nothing, there's nothing sort of relaxed about me. Whereas I there's a sort of sense of relaxedness about you that I think. Is, mm. Mm. What do you think? 
Um, I think definitely, I do get angry. Yeah, I think I probably get angry in private yeah. more than in public. And I, when I do get angry, I think I, although I know that anger's fine, I feel a little bit ashamed of myself. And I, I think the point is, I, I know I've strayed from my, what I consider to be the kind of calm, peaceful me. Yeah, well, I wasn't sort of suggesting you never got angry yeah. because you wouldn't really be a human being no. if you didn't yeah. get angry. It's a funny thing though, anger. I mean, I mean, I feel very ashamed every time I get angry, like mm. deeply shamed. But it doesn't stop me from getting angry all the time. Yeah. Whereas it sounds like you get angry kind of rarely, and so maybe the shame is working for you. <laughs> maybe it's stopping you from getting angry. Oh, maybe more. yeah. I don't know. So from university, you went to the top to Togo. Togo. This is the Congo. I'm getting these two yeah, things mixed true. together. And, and togas. Togas, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I do this thing. I, I've noticed before in recordings, I just go with the wrong word consistently, okay. like once it gets in my head. Do you want me to correct you if you say Yeah, please. Okay. Right, we'll do. Please do. So you went there, and then you went to France. Yeah, after university. Yes. Uh, how old were you when you went to France? You were quite young. Um... 21? Yeah. And you lived in France? Mm, four years. So what was it like living in France for four years? I loved it. I was ready to come back by the end. The The lifestyle was amazing. I loved that and I do miss it. Um, but weirdly, I don't, I don't... There were things every now and then, like I was in Morrison's on Sunday and I suddenly got a little bit angry, funnily enough, about how shit English mayonnaise is. <laughs> compared to French mayonnaise and how unjust it was and there was nothing I could do about that make your own yeah and I miss the food and the wine and going to the market and my lifestyle because I worked um, strange hours I meant I got to go to the Thursday market and um, it was a fantastic time and I knew how lucky I was when I was out there so you were ready to come back yeah, um, the job I was doing I liked a lot, but it wasn't going anywhere, and I think I knew that. So yeah, job-wise, although I didn't particularly know what I wanted to do necessarily throughout most of the time I was there. It was also quite a small town as well. Beautiful countryside, not too far away, which I loved. I missed my friends, I missed my family, that was it yeah, really. Yeah, I think it's hard being a, yeah. a stranger in another country. Yeah. Even if you hate your country, I think once you go somewhere else, you realise that there's all these things you like. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you hate the UK. You might, but I'm yeah. not suggesting. Well, it works both ways, definitely. But as much as you think your country's great, when you go away, you, you see the cracks, don't you? Ah, I see. Well. What was better about France than the UK? Things that were good about France. The importance of the family, I really liked. I mean, it is very traditional, the way that they've kept. You know, they know what's important to them, and they want it to stay that way. Uh, like shops not opening on Sunday. A real pain when you want to go and do something on Sunday, but it, it means it's a family day. Dinners around the table with the whole family, lunch maybe as well. And the frustrating thing about it was the, the attitude of, well, that's the way it is. Um, as, a, as a customer in England, it's a little bit American really, isn't it? Customers are always right. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like that in France. So many times I went to customer services and, and was just treated like, oh, that, that, you know, that noise Interesting. was actually made. It would probably drive me mad, because I've worked in kind of customer services for quite a while, yeah. when I worked in the libraries, and I get really annoyed when I go places and they don't put the customer first. Yeah. I'm like, I had to do it. <laughs> no, you <laughs> can't do it. 
<laughs> yeah, same here. I've done lots of customer service stuff as well. And it was just unbelievable to me that they could treat customers like that. Um, and of course, it's only shocking and horrific compared to the cheery kind of customers are always right that we might have here. But, you know, I, I quite like that attitude. It like, can be nice. The problem is when the customer's wrong. Yeah, that's true. That's the problem, yeah. isn't it? I mean, really what you need is, it's like, the, it's like with the legal system, with anything, it's like you, you need to be able to go case by case situation and have that kind of subtlety. <laughs> yeah. But you can never have that if you're yeah. like, making a policy for your shop, unless it's a small business and then you have control over all those things. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, frustrating. But it did, mean, it did mean that because people had this mentality of, well, that's the way it is, that also meant that things didn't change as much. Mm. People put up with stuff because that's the way it was, and that meant that you kept these nice traditions. Are the French rude and arrogant? No. <laughs> I think the rude and arrogance is linked with this. Well, that's the way thing. it is. Yeah. I know I keep saying that, but it really felt like if you had to come up with a little motto to summarise... <laughs> My experience in living in France, that would be, that would be it. That, and so I guess that's is. why people say that. But of course they're not. It's yeah. funny. I mean, I. In general. The the English is the same thing. I think the stereotypes about us are probably related to just our small talk, the way that we actually yeah. engage, very basically with people. Yeah. And so I guess that's what everyone gets judged on. Yeah. And I guess yeah, that because 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 it's it's a, I, I remember when I went to. When I go to Germany, I always think the funny thing is the only word you really need to know is Entschuldigung, which is sorry and excuse me. It means <laughs> both. Oh, so yeah. as an English person, that's all you need to know. Because yeah. that's all you're going to be saying to strangers is sorry or excuse me. Well, and they don't say excuse me there. And they don't say sorry. And it's just not part of the kind of... In Germany? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't like to actually say because I've only experienced it yeah. you know, occasionally. But I, I do think there's this, they say, a lot of the time there's not this, and not just in Germany, there's this, they don't have queues, do they, in lots of places. Yeah. Whereas we have queues and we think that these things are all politeness and they probably are, but they're, I can see pros and cons to both yeah. sides. It's very annoying when you're standing in a queue though, and loads of people who don't view queues as important come along. Yeah. That's the worst thing. Um, and, and I still love a good queue. <laughs> I think I I know queues have become more tolerable since uh, since smartphones got invented. I can't stand, <laughs> I can't stand standing in a queue with nothing to do. <laughs> if it's a long one. And what did you learn about the UK going away from it and coming back? Ooh, um, hmm, what did I learn about the UK? So I used to have loads of things I'd learned about the UK. Now you ask me that question, I don't know what the answer is. I guess the time's gone by, hasn't it? Yeah. But this was this is a subject that's fascinating to me, and I've had it many, many times in France and coming back to England. And everyone must ask you, I guess, in both yeah. countries. Well, it has been a while. I think, yeah, the, the family thing makes me very, very aware of the lack of that in England, although I kind of was aware of that before I left. There's a big difference in, like, sexual and racial discrimination between the two countries. Not huge, but, you know, considering, really, we're very different. You can you can see it a lot, especially in the kind of provincial town that I lived in. Because France is a, is more racist. Yeah. Although I mean, you can go to some areas of the UK. And yes, exactly. Are similar. Yeah, and I'm sure if I wasn't in London now, it wouldn't have been such a difference. It can be quite shocking if you live in London going to anywhere. Yeah. That's provincial. We can't really speak to the racism that much because we're both white. 
but well, you can speak to the sexism side of things. How did you find French men treated you? Well, actually, that's anecdotal as well. Just speaking to people, women, black men, and women, and white. Yeah. So you weren't. You never experienced. No, I don't it. think it's openly sexist in a kind of insulting way. Right. I think the differences in women in the workplace and women in the home kind of attitudes held generally by society. Okay. Um, I know a British woman that went across to work um, in a French company and she, it was a kind of a half French, half English company. So she went across from England to France and talked often about how there was a clear um, kind of mistrust of her because she, I guess she came from the English, an English company to France and suddenly became their boss and she was a woman and she had to really struggle to get their respect. Did you experience much kind of anti-English feeling in France? Um, no. The thing that I was very aware of was the, the stereotype of the kind of English drinking culture and the, the girls, which, you know, I kind of cringe a little bit because I think it's true in comparison to France. Because they um, drink a bit more reasonably there, yes. do you think? Yeah, yeah definitely a bit more <laughs> Where we'd be in a pub... And as soon as you finish drinking, you go for another one. Uh, the same thing was true with cigarettes. Aha. And yeah. then was no longer true. And, and the smoking ban came... Did it come... I can't remember if I was there or not. Has there been there. a smoke... Is there, well, there's a smoking ban in yes, France? Yes, there is. I never thought I, it would That's happen. amazing. I didn't even know yeah. that. No, it did happen when I was there. Because I remember there was a lot on the news about small businesses that were going to be suffering because of loss of income through tobacco sales and talk about government um, aid... <laughs> for loss of income of tobacco. If, if, if France had gone that way, then there's no, there's no going know, back, really, yeah. is there? I, couldn't, I, I knew it would probably have to happen sometime, but I didn't think it would happen so soon. Um, yeah, it was amazing. But, yeah, you'd be in a bar and there'd be a group of people around a table with no drinks on their tables at all. And in England, you'd, it would almost be like, oh, you've got to have a drink. Yeah, because you can't there. stay. Yeah. I always feel like I have to have a drink in front of me in a bar or they'll shut yeah, me out. Yeah, So... Louise, it has been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you, and I think it's, it's been nice actually because I think I have actually got better acquainted with you. That there are certain things I didn't know about you that I now know. The question that I'm asking everyone at the end of the interviews is, do you have anything that you want to plug? And you can interpret that in any way you like. It's been interesting. Some people have have, have, have plugged like who I thought were going to say no. Have come up with interesting things. To plug. Don't feel the pressure that you have um, to do that. You can say no. Sitting on the fence. It's great and I'd recommend it to anyone. Recommend it. Sitting on the fence. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, that's the thing. People have done that. It's been really conceptual. I never thought it would go that way. Brilliant. So everybody should sit on the fence more. <laughs> I have a problem with doing that. It's very, really hard to do it. I mean, I can sit on the fence. No, I can't. I can sit on the fence on my own in a room and go, I just can't make up my mind about that. If I'm in a conversation, I just always take a position. Do you sometimes finish a conversation and go, why did I say that? All the time. <laughs> so often. <laughs> but, uh, but Ah, now I am better acquainted with you. <laughs> I think that's an important thing for people to know about me, actually, because otherwise yeah. they just think I'm a nutcase. But I, I'm aware that I'm a nutcase. <laughs> um, so on that bombshell, would you like to say goodbye to the listeners? Goodbye, listeners. It's been a pleasure. Goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, 
is Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.